welcome. I'm Alexia Hudson-Ward, the Editor-in-Chief of Toward Inclusive Excellence, or TIE for short, a multimedia blog hosted by Choice, a publishing unit of the Association of College and Research Libraries, a division of the American Library Association. Among the goals of this channel is the development of a corpus of resources for information professionals, undergraduates, faculty of all discipline, campus staff, and administrators at every level seeking to advance and promote research-centered diversity, equity, and inclusion insights on their campuses and within their communities. We are excited to welcome you to this season's podcast series that borrows its name from the Higher Education Academic Calendar. Therefore, you're listening to Ty's Fall Semester Podcast. Our first interview is a two-part series featuring Jordan Clark, Harvard University's Assistant Director of the Native American Program. Jordan is an enrolled member of the Wampanoag Tribe of Aquinnah, located on Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. He holds a bachelor's degree in African American Studies from Temple University and a master's in International Affairs focusing on governance and rights from the New School in New York City. Jordan's professional background includes a DEI leadership position and a history faculty role in a private high school. He has also executed leadership training and professional development for high school students and adults. Our conversation for Ty focuses on Jordan's essential work to further historical insights into the longstanding and complicated connection between the Wampanoag tribe and Harvard University. One of his goals is to support documenting and strengthening the recognition and contributions of his tribe within the university and the larger community. In part one, we discuss many topics, including the Afro-Indigenous history of Martha's Vineyard and how universities can shift towards a collective decolonial mindset. In part two of our interview, we delve into how decolonializing academic libraries must go beyond our collections and why it's essential to strike a balance with using AI that is strategically cautionary and visionary with Native American history. Jordan also wastes no time demonstrating his Harvard pride, and you'll get to hear that in a few points in this interview. And now part two of our Toward Inclusive Excellence Fall Semester Podcast interview with Jordan Clark, Harvard University's Assistant Director of the Native American Program. Jordan, thank you so much for joining us for the second part of our conversation. Part one was great. So I know part two is going to be even equally, if not more, very interesting because we're going to get into some of the gnarly, as some of my colleagues say, uh, in relationship to the work of academic libraries and generative AI, a whole bunch of real interesting topics. So thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me again. Absolutely. So, Jordan, many of my colleagues in academic libraries are interested in decolonializing our libraries by addressing historic legacies 
within our collections, the ways in which we go about course-related instruction, and even in some parts, our physical spaces and, and how we prioritize certain images, certain objects, certain art, you know, and, and how those things can center colonialistic practices. So what are your thoughts on where librarians, library workers, administrators um, should begin in this really critical and important work? Sure. I, I know in, in my work, I get a lot of inquiries from librarians and ask, what's the list of books I should buy to decolonize my library? And yes, that is a component of the process, but it's not the only step, right? That's almost like the check the box. Because if yes. you have this amazing collection of, of literature from, from Native voices, but you yourself aren't on the process of, of de a decolonial mindset, how are you going to push students and other people engaging in your work uh, to those things? And so I really think that you have to do more than just buy books by Native authors. Um, two really amazing examples that I wanted to give in, in a previous life uh, in working in high schools, uh, I had a Native colleague who was our librarian and the work that she would do to physically change the space, to challenge mm. the students to on a daily basis engage with something that was not from Western thought is vastly important. The setup of a space and the design of a space can really change the interaction and engagement of the people using it. And so, um, on a regular basis, once a month, things changed in the space that brought a new piece of visual art, a new voice, uh, a quote, something that challenged the students to engage with that and then ask questions about where it came from. So yes, there are a lot of Native authors and representation in that library, but it's the work that happens on a regular basis by the librarian themselves to get the audience to engage and to think about it. Um, it's making libraries interactive. It's pushing that forward into people's faces. So the library isn't a passive space. It's an active space. Yes. It's calling people in and it's challenging them when they're in that presence. I would always say that, especially when I worked in high schools, the library is one of the biggest classrooms um, and engages with the most students. Um, when I taught history classes, I might have 18 students in a class where my colleague in the library was dealing with the entire school in one moment or another during the week. And so that's a really important space. The other one um, that I would shout is um, Julie Fiveash at the Tozer Library here at Harvard. Um, the work that they have done um, to reimagine that anthropology space is amazing. So it's not just books, it's zines, it's other pieces of uh, knowledge that you don't just get in literature or in like these big tomes of history. It's how you create the space. So do, is it inviting in a way that doesn't feel like a claustrophobic kind of Western view of a library? And so even yes. her sending out or them sending out their newsletter, um, talking about what's happening in native spaces and libraries and others across the country, showing that it's not just happening in one space, but it's happening in many spaces. It's really creating that coalition and that network. So an individual knows that this is not the sole space to have that engagement, but they can seek out other ones. And so there are librarians and especially native librarians who are doing really amazing work to, to do exactly what you're talking about. Um, and again, it's not just about the list of books that you should have in your library, but it's how you create the space and engage the audience as well. 
and it has to be the personal work too because if you are the yes the the standard bearer if you are the person that's really setting the tone of the space you you personally have to be doing that work so you know how to ask the right question and guide your audience in the right direction Yes, yes. Thank you so much for that answer and for the great shout out to two of my colleagues and one especially in school libraries because I I have said before that I feel there's so much knowledge and co-learning that can happen between academic library workers and school library workers around just the points that you had centered and most specifically how space and engagement can be dynamic and not passive and the ways in which, you know, you can enliven a space without it having to be a big capital project, right? Like you can create a dialogue space on a particular topic and it's just a matter of just saying you're going to do it, right? And so I appreciate you raising all of those really important suggestions. I also want us to talk a little bit, Jordan, about archives and special collections, you know, two areas that um, I think historically have prioritized in, in the sense of rare materials and, and the elevation of certain types of Western materials. And again, those colleagues are, are really doing great work to decolonize you know, to decolonize what has happened in both sides of, of those particular corpuses of work and just how they think about collection strategies. Can you also talk about that? Like what activities should we be thinking about embarking upon from your perspective that you haven't seen yet, but you would like to see within the archival realm and within the special collections realm? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think a great example is the the Houghton Library here at, at Harvard. They have uh, the John Eliot Bible. So the first Bible ever printed in the Western Hemisphere, not in English, yes. but in Wampanoag. Um, yes. Used as a tool to forcibly convert Wampanoag people and other Algonquin speaking people to Christianity. That could be the entire narrative of that object, right? It can live in that library. People can learn about it. And that's what it stands for. But what if you tell that story in a more contemporary sense? Um, uh, Jesse Little Doe Baird um, from uh, Wampanoag Tribe in Mashpee has done a significant amount of work connected with MIT um, to create mm -hmm. the Wampanoag Language Revitalization and Reclamation Project um, using yes. the John Eliot Bible and other documents written in Wampanoag to reverse engineer our language. Um, and so yes. there are people today taking classes learning Wampanoag because that Bible existed. And so I would say for those who are curating and collecting and kind of the, and being the stewards of these older and more rare objects in our libraries, um, doing the work to create a more holistic story around them, right? Again, centering the voices of the people that engage with them. You could talk about John Eliot for days and more people would know about John Eliot than Caleb Chisitimuk, the first Native American to graduate from Harvard. Jesse right. Little Doe Baird, the Wampanoag uh, Language Reclamation Project, right? But how could how Im impressive and important would it be for those voices to be lifted up when people think about this object, right? It doesn't just have to be about the name that's on it um, or the tragic history connected to it, but also the really empowering pieces that come from that and, and centering native voices around the John Elliott Bible instead of colonial voices. Yes, thank you. And, and thank you to, for the shout out to MIT. 
it, it hurt a little bit, but, but I'll give credit where you know, it's due. Uh, you know, <laughs> you know, we're happy to always shout out the cousins down the street when exactly. it's appropriate. And so thank you um, for that as well, because it's an important point around the partnership between the two of us around technologically enabled materials, right? And I think that in some ways that gets lost sometimes among my colleagues writ large. You know, you were saying people are asking you for book lists, but then, you know, which is fine, right? We don't want to discourage that. Nope. But there's other methodology that we can be co-thinking and partnering on to ensure that there is open access to really important and vital materials to further the discourse and to further our understanding and to enliven insights, right, in different ways. And so I, I, you know, I love the ribbing, but I, I appreciate the shout out because uh, my team at MIT Libraries is thrilled to partner with you all. We are collectively excited um, to partner with you on really important work, but I also think it stands as an example of how individuals and institutions can do this work together, right? Because I think sometimes people think of doing it in isolation and or there's this sense that, you know, there's some embarrassment, you know, I don't have these types of, you know, tools or resources, but to understand that there is a broader community that is interested in advancing this work. And it's funny because hearkening back to the open access piece, Jordan, you know, I still find myself in different conversation and dialogue spaces, having to raise up DEI, right? Having to raise up native voices and, and native work. And it's it's curious to me why there's a barrier in, in my mind within higher education around putting or centering more Native American culture within open access scholarship. Like you talked about it a little bit in part one around some barriers to tenure and perceptions of open access being lesser than the written book. But I'm really interested in hearing your perspectives more on why do you think this remains a persistent challenge? Well, I think there's two pieces to that. One, I think because of the history of Native communities in the United States and other places, knowledge has been stolen and reappropriated by Western yeah. society. And so there's yes, a real yes. hesitancy from Native communities to actively share their knowledge in certain spaces because they don't know how it's going to be used because so much was taken and reappropriated um, and divorced from those communities themselves. And so I think there has to be a level of work done by institutions to create consistent and trustworthy relationships with Native communities to even get to a place where we can have that open access um, to really important information. Because if there's not trust there, then why would Native communities share their knowledge with any institution or community outside of themselves? Um, so I think right. that's the first piece. I think the second piece is that at least what I've experienced is less of like a um, a pushback against it and more of a worry from institutions to mess things up, right? We want to do mm. good, but we don't know how to do it. And then if you don't have the voices in your community to help guide you and give you reassurance that you are doing right, you are a rudderless boat, right? And so if there's a right. lack of native representation at your institution, you lose the ability to have that moment. And so I always will say, if you you have to have more native people in your institution, like for anyone, if that's the first step, it's like, 
like how many native yeah. tenured professors do you have? How many staff members working in these places that you want to be indigenized, right? You want to be decolonized. If there's not native voices in those spaces, it's going to limit your your progress. And so if I could give advice to anyone, it would be like hire more qualified native people for the jobs that you have open. And then you'll see a massive shift because you will see the work done in your programs completely change. But you'll also see the ability to maybe connect in meaningful ways to local native communities and start to build that relationship that allows for that that even exchange of information and access. Because I would say, if you want a native community to share their information with you, what are you sharing with them to make it mutually beneficial? How many native students right. are you bringing into your institutions from those communities? If you don't have any Wampanoag students at your school, why would the Wampanoag community outrightly share their wisdom with you? And so again, I think it has to start there and it has to be consistent over a long period of time to really see benefit. Yeah, thank you so much for that really important piece because yeah, right? I mean, one would think that that would land like right <laughs> like right at the heart of it like we should have more native indigenous people working for us, right? Yet we do throw up kind of the barriers or and and part of the barrier is the fear, like I'm gonna mess it up. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate you giving people space to say it's okay. You know, we can do these things incrementally, yet you still have to have an intentional gaze on the compositional mix of who you have within your respective institution that can help to guide some of this important work as well. So thank you for that. One of the other things that I could talk to you for hours. Um, so just in the spirit of, of, you know, just transparency, you know, I'm gonna try to make this our last question or somewhere around the last question. <laughs> um, but uh, this has been a wonderful dialogue and I want us to pivot now into thinking about artificial intelligence, right? And so I know that there are so many Native American communities, Jordan scholars and researchers who are aiming to debug biases and false information in AI, like already, it just feels like it just happened. And within that, you know, here comes the nonsense. Like it reminds me of early internet. Um, Dave Chappelle did a really funny skit where, you know, he kind of said if the internet was a mall and it was just a mess, you know, like just, just all types of false information being shared and strange other strange T's happening. And in many ways, I feel that way about what has taken place with Indigenous communities and AI. And so there are many people that are trying to also embrace AI to advance critical cultural history. And so how are you thinking about striking this balance between exercising caution, yet also really taking on strategic management of AI to ensure that Native American history within AI tools are as accurate as possible? That's a really good question. Um, I think in academia, like the large language models are are at the forefront of the conversations that are happening um, in schools all over the place. I think the really important piece in my limited knowledge of of how all that works is, is that those tools aren't creating anything. They're scraping information that already exists. So the challenge for native communities is that 
the sources that they're scraping from are problematic or colonized or from a Western view. And so if those models are pulling from this already colonized system, then it's only a matter of time that, that that's what they're going to perpetuate and uplift. And so I think what that represents to me is the biggest like bullhorn that has ever existed, right? That the internet can connect to everyone, right? In a way that we have not seen um, in, in human history. And so if yes. colonial ideology and values um, and the erasure of Native Americans is part of that history and the, the information that those systems are pulling from, those are the things that are going to be amplified. And that's where I, I'm worried um, mm, that mm-hmm. if Native voices aren't being centered before these technologies existed, how could these technologies amplify Native voices? Or are they going to continue to amplify the erasure of Native American people, communities, history, culture? And so that's the worry I have. Um, but I think with every great advancement in human evolution, there's the opportunity for things to change. And so, again, yes. if there are Native voices or marginalized voices in the development and creation of these things, then there's opportunity. But the reality is, I don't know how many Native people are at the center of, of these moments, right? I, I always right. turn back to the, the self-driving cars, right? That at one point, they were, they were not recognizing people with darker skin tones as human because all right. of the faces they were given in their technology were white, right? And I don't think that happened because the individuals who were engineering and creating those things are outrightly racist, but because they come from a society where they're only thinking about themselves and the people that are around them, which in a segregated society, it's very easy to see how we get from creation to to those moments happening, right? And so when representation, voices, and expertise is not centered with a diverse group of people and bringing in other marginalized or, or communities that aren't always at the forefront of those conversations, you're going to see negative things come out of that technology. It does not mean that technology is inherently evil, but it is a product of the people who create it and the system that it lives within. And so I think when we we talk about that in academia, these large language models are going to perpetuate some of the challenges that we're fighting against and make them even bigger than, than they are in previous iterations. Yes, I agree. And you raised... Um an important piece around large language models. And one of my biggest concerns, Jordan, is that right now the tools are not being built with native languages in mind, right? And so even if we were to use a tool, for example, like Otter, you know, which many institutions rightfully so have adopted, um, you know, if we were to start generating a conversation in your native language, Otter would probably send us back some scribble, right? Or something that is completely gibberish. And most recently, you know, I've seen some things come out of the African nations who are now starting to have a conversation that, you know, we need an African AI. We need an AI that will be able to, you know, identify our cultural artifacts, our languages, our ancient languages, and not, you know, gamify it, you know, or create it in a way where it furthers mythology, but that it can actually be leveraged, you know, as an essential research tool. 
And so I'm I'm curious in hearing, you know, how are you thinking about the work of your office in in kind of this big sphere? Because it's a big sphere that's now come quickly on many of our institutions. Sure. I mean, I think I think for us, um, our partnerships with our with our schools and the faculty is, is really paramount in that work. Um, because none of us are going to be the experts in in that field, um, but we can definitely raise questions. But we have to be able to push the university at large to really be asking some of the important questions that that you're raising. Um, whether mm-hmm. it's around language, whether it's around sourcing, whether it's around kind of the the practices that we put in place. Like I I wonder in some of those examples, like yeah, who who is at the table having those conversations? Who is in the process of creating those things because it's one thing for a community to say we want this but the second question is who builds it and what biases are built into that based on those individuals like do you have to be a content expert in that community to be able to accurately build a system that reflects it in a way that that makes sense right and and pushes forward the needs and the wants of the community that is the target audience um and so so I think for us, it's about raising questions. It's about bringing coalitions together um, because no one person is going to hold all the answers or expertise, but getting the right people in the room and being a part of the conversation at its founding and at its its, its uh, start, I think is is paramount. So if you're going to try and do something uh, for a community, that community has to be at the table from the very beginning and have an active say in what's happening and be a part of its development, not just giving you the information and then you run with it and bring back your final kind of piece and say, here's what we built. Um, but it has to be right. a reciprocal, consistent relationship. Yes, yes. Jordan, thank you so much for both conversations. We really appreciate it. It has been a delight and a treat to have this conversation with you. Shout out to my co-Temple University <laughs> graduate in African-American studies, T for Temple U, Owls are everywhere, all of that good stuff. And congratulations again on your role at Harvard. We're so happy to have you in Cambridge. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the questions and the candor, and I appreciate the platform to share share some of this. Absolutely. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our Toward Inclusive Excellence Fall Semester Podcast with Jordan Clark, Harvard University's Assistant Director of the Native American Program. Be sure to catch both episodes, part one and two, of our amazing conversation with Jordan. I encourage you to sign up for reminders of new content releases and to follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. Also check us out on LinkedIn and TikTok. Thank you so much for your support. Be well.